Welcome to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. LEAP stands for leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. And I'm on a journey to connect with high achievers and highlight their unexamined human moments. Tune in to learn how these high-achieving LEAP individuals were able to reach their greatest potential, face their most difficult challenges, and embrace the human moments that helped them along the way. If you want to get the episode highlights directly in your email, then head to theleapcasts.com right now to subscribe. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to LeapCast. I'm your host, Dr. George James. We're here where we talk to leaders, entertainers, athletes, and performers. I am here with another amazing, awesome, wonderful, dope friend, Kibi Anderson, as well as uh, someone that I've gotten to know over the past few years. And she is just amazing. She's an executive coach as well as multi-talented, as you will hear as we get in this conversation. Uh, Kibi, welcome, and thanks for joining me here on LeapCast. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be here. You know, George was Dr. George was getting on me because it's been a minute for us to get here. But I said, listen, all in the God's timing. So I'm hey, so excited to be here. It totally is. A chat. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I, I look, I, I believe it happens when it's supposed to happen. So it's all good. And I'm, I'm grateful for that. And actually now, you know, we're actually moving into season three. So this will be officially in season three. And I'm so grateful for your time here. And so what we like to do you like I like to start off with what I say is the leap story. So being able to kind of go back to kind of the early parts of like what shaped you or formed you into like kind of who you are and how you thought and what you did. And so that could be early, you know, you know, single digits, things that you started to do growing up in the household, just some of those early kind of memories that formed and shaped you. Yeah. Oh, goodness. You know, I would say that you know, for probably many people, a lot of my character was formed from pressure, you know, just pressure, you know, how I say those diamonds are formed when you have to figure out how to, you know, break through, you know, I, by the grace of God, you know, have been the product of a single mom. You know, my father, unfortunately was not around. He is a, you know, has kind of battled drug and alcohol all his life, but he was actually the first black quarterback to be recruited to play for the Huskies, University of Washington. So I say that just because I feel like I've had this interesting system of paradoxes in my life, right? You know, on the one hand, there's sort of like this greatness. Father moves to Seattle. That's how I ended up there. He sent for my mother. I'm born. But at the same time, you know, kind of dealing with the vestiges of 80s crack era, got hurt, couldn't ultimately, you know, I think live out his dream and wasn't able to overcome. I was born out of you know, sort wow. of the the dichotomy of those two things, you know, wow. feeling like there's more, knowing that there's more, having a curiosity as a kid, that there was more, but at the same time, having to overcome what it feels like, you know, to perhaps not be fully covered, you know, by a parent, yeah. you know, to not fully have, you know, the immediate sort of home life be as stable as you would like. So I learned grit. <laughs> I learned how to survive. And, you know, and like I said, I think there's always been a spark around curiosity. And so- yeah. That curiosity led me to do things that I probably would have never imagined. And we can kind of get onto that. Um, and because I have a mom who understands community, who is a praying woman, I also was able to, you know, leverage the support of my um, collective family. You know, those other mothers, yes. sisters and brothers, yes. my yes. dads and aunties and uncles and other friends who were coming from similar backgrounds. 
And we just rolled this, we, we just rolled this stuff together, you know, and, and I think that's what's born in me, like I said, a sense of drive and determination, but also just a value for the, just the, the necessity of community and kind of how you do anything. So that's the longest short. I could probably get into some, no, some things, but. I, and uh, we'll get into some of that a little bit more. And I appreciate like how you shape it in the context. And the truth is right. Like there is a uh, pressure that really uh, shapes so many of us and adversity and those things that come out of it and I, this, this is the east coast in me uh you know i don't often hear about stories of folks like uh, in seattle and folks of color and and black folks uh, in terms of what was it like growing up there you know like i hear cali i hear of other places but like seattle you know you, you i think about you know like it being like cloudy and rainy like london or something right so I, I just wonder, like, what what that was like for you growing up in that area? Yeah, no, you know, I always get teased by the fact that folks are like, there's black folks in Seattle. But I always say there is something in the water, because when if I were to, to spout to you some of the folks who came out of Seattle who are doing big things like Angela Rye, you know, who's big on CNN, Nate Burleson, who's at CBS, you know, Kalana Barfield, you know, who's doing I mean, we all came out of Seattle. So I oftentimes say that Seattle is one of the most special places, I think, to be a black person because of the fact that there were so few of us. Mm. And so we all sort of came together and especially kind of in the eighties and nineties, you know, there were like two big black churches, right. <laughs> you know, and I went to the, you know, one of the biggest and, you know, I grew up in a community where I saw doctors and lawyers and business nice. owners, you know, and, and there was a prosperity and that uh, focus around education. You know, my church, Mount Zion Baptist church founded by Reverend Samuel, Dr. Martin, Reverend Samuel Barry McKinney, his wife, Louise McKinney, may they rest in peace. I mean, they instilled in us a value system around education being first. You know, anything is possible. You know, as I shared, you know, I came from humble, be humble beginnings. Like I have been homeless. You know, my mom has had to figure out how to rob Peter to pay Paul, but we could always go to my church and take a collection and pass yeah. it and say, okay, you know, Kibi wants to go to Singapore. Kibi's trying to get in, <laughs> go to Harvard. Kibi's trying to do this program in DC and folks came through. You know, so to me, that's what I think the beauty of growing up in a city like Seattle was about. You know, we didn't have anybody else. And, you know, people sort of make this joke, you know, like Seattle, while yes, we do have, you know, challenges and poverty in our community, you know, our like projects don't look like the projects in Philly, right? You know, like <laughs> we had yards, you know, we had kind right. of backyard, you know, you could walk to the lake and it was just absolutely breathtaking. So, being able to grow up in a community where you did, you know, you did somewhat feel safe, you know, like you could kind of walk to the corner and I don't want to diminish. I mean, we had our challenges, you know, gang violence and teenage pregnancy and drug stuff. But at the same time, there was so much of the alternative examples that I was able to see that, you know, when I left and moved abroad or moved to the East Coast, I realized how pivotal that childhood experience was in giving me the confidence and like, allowing me to walk into rooms and act like and know that and believe that I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, unfortunately, just because of other dynamics where other communities, you may not have had those role models, you know, it's hard to kind of yeah. like actually believe because you can't always see it. No, I love that. And, and especially like this, the example of, you know, people being around people who encourage education or going after your dreams, and also who are willing to support you in tough or difficult times. Uh, all right, so, th so those are some of those early years. And I know that like at some point, 
you know, you start to travel. Uh, how old were you when that that started? Like, I like not just travel. Like, I'm gonna go like you know down the road. Like, you like left the country and it was like in other places. Like, how old were you when that happened? You know, so I, you know, I was 17 when I left Seattle to move to Singapore. And this is a funny story, and people always tease me because, um, you know, I had decided to move to Singapore that I wanted to move to Singapore before I even told my mom. Like, I one of those kids. Like I said, curious kid. You know, I had gone to this program in D.C for kind of, you know, gifted kids, you know, young yeah. leader. And I met this young girl from Singapore and she had just told me so much about how amazing Singapore was and specifically how good the food was. And I'm not going to front Dr. George. The reason why I ended up in Singapore is because I loved Asian food at that time. I love <laughs> and it. And I get this thing in the mail back in the day, you know, we didn't have email. It was a, yeah. it was a letter. And, you know, it just talked about this school. So I ended up going to a school called the United World Colleges. There were there's 10 of 15 of them now. Back in the day, you know, there were, about, I think, seven or eight. And their whole focus was recruiting young, kind of ambitious kids who had gone through their sophomore year of, of whatever equivalent of that in their own home country. And um, to recruit you to go to this school where you could live and be in community with other students from around the world. And it was founded by like Queen Jordan and like Nelson Mandela, really to sort of counter this idea of like maybe if kids know each other, they don't want to blow each other up, you know, kind of height <laughs> of the Cold War. and I was just fascinated. And one of the schools was Singapore. And wow. so I decided to say, hey, why not? You know, I think I was probably a little bored in high school and kind of, you know, eager to sort of see what what else was out there. And I applied and got in. And it's when I got in and I realized, oh, wait, there's a little bit of money. I guess I should talk to my mom. Wow. And that's when I went to her and I told her she was like, what? Singapore. But, you know, listen, like I said, food has got me into a lot of trouble. Dr. Hey, <laughs> hey, but you but you did it, though. I mean, which uh, it sounds like that's been a part of what you do. Right. You've been determined. You've been focused. You have the, the desire you apply. And like, look, I'll figure out the details after. Right. Which is which is all, uh, amazing that you are able and willing to do that. And I don't want to lose track. Right. Like, you know, to this point, it, it sounds which I know this is definitely you that you you were uh, in the programs, the gifted programs, you were in the, you know, high academics. So like, you don't, you don't just kind of wake up and say you want to go to like international school, like you have to have the credentials to do that. And it sounds like that that was a part of your path. And so what was one educationally that led you to there, but also two the experience in Singapore? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, absolutely. I was a nerd. You know, I'm one of those kids who got lost in books. I'm an only child. You know, I found out I actually have a half brother much later in life. But for the most part, I was raised as an only child. So my dreams were 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 crafted in story. You know, we'll get to kind of my later work kind of yeah. in filmmaking. But, you know, at my core, I always knew that if I could read it and dream it, it was possible. And so I would read books about these far off places and be like, huh, that's kind of interesting. And I think the other thing was when I was growing up, my mother was very active in politics and she was active in international kind of relations. And so she would host delegates from other countries. Oh. So I would have people coming to our home from, you know, Russia, we were former Soviet Union at the time, yeah. Asia, you know, and I think being it, growing up in a city like Seattle, which had a very large Asian population, Vietnamese, Chinese, Japanese, you know, so I was very kind of um, acculturated and very used yeah. to those things. And like I said, I always people always tease me. I say I'm actually like an Asian girl in a black girl's body, like, <laughs> you know, at my core. But yeah, so I think just all of those things, you know, kind of sparked this like, what if? And so it didn't seem so foreign to me 
to kind of think about being around or going to an environment where I might be the only, you know, because that's kind of what I had experienced growing up. So it was sort of like, why not? You know, let's try it out. And like I said, I could get some good food. Um, (laughs) You know, and Singapore, like they got chili crab, they got fried rice. I mean, all the things. Ain't nothing wrong with some good food. (laughs) Nothing at all. Yeah. And so that's what sort of got me there. And, you know, I will give my mom a lot of credit because when I talked about doing it, she got a lot of backlash. She did. I mean, people in our community who were just very critical, like, how could you let her go? You know, fear (laughs) kind of based stuff. And she kind of fought through it, you know, and and just sort of decided, okay, if this is what you want, you know, we're going to do it. And I'm so grateful she did because going to Singapore absolutely changed my life. Like, it absolutely changed my life. So, right. I think there are a lot of parents who would have shut it down because of fear and anxiety. 17, you know, you're going to get into X, Y, and Z. And, and you far. It's not like I can just ride down the street and come scoop yeah, you and up. We, and there was no cell phones. Like we talk about right. fax machines back in the right. day. Like, yeah. Right, right. And so, right, it's a faith move, right, on some level to be able to say, okay, go ahead. So how did it change your life? It just gave me so much perspective on the world. Yeah. You know, I, I, have, I would encourage every parent, like if your child has any indication, any inkling of wanting to go abroad, it, please let them go because it helped me understand like how much of a world citizen I actually am. You know, and I think growing up in a country like America, like, you know, by the grace of God, I'm American. I'm proud yeah. to be American despite all the craziness going on in this world right yeah. now. Yeah. I am still grateful to be here. And it's because, you know, at the end of the day, there is a lot of possibility. And I think that can, that's at one level. But when I went to Singapore, I mean, I went to school with kids from, you know, Bangladesh, from, you know, all parts of Europe, from India, from Africa, you know, from all parts of Asia, and just seeing like their experiences, how yeah. they see the world, you know, how they kind of approach what's possible. It just, again, broadened my horizons um, on the one hand. And it also just gave me more confidence because, you know, I came from humble beginnings. And the reality was the school that I went to, I mean, the Sultan of Brunei's nephew mm-hmm. was one of my classmates, you know. Mm-hmm. I had friends from Indonesia whose parents were in parliament. You know, I, it's funny, my roommate, my first year there had never made a bed before in her life. And I have pictures of her making a bed for the first time. And I'm just like, how have you lived in the world yeah. and never made a bed? But it was, it was perspective. Yeah. So I think because I had been around that level of like exposure and probably wealth, when I came back to America, you know, and I went to places like Harvard University and, you know, and some of the other big companies I've worked at post, I was like, this ain't nothing, you know, so it came to just sort of allowing me to reinforce that confidence, like allowing me to sort of see, like, I've seen people with the most and they struggle just like me. Like they trying to figure out how to pass exams. I'm giving them help. It just really reoriented everything. And that is one of the reasons why I know I've been able to have the success I've had post, um, you know, school, you know, I was able to get through Harvard with flying color, you know, all the things because that foundation was so pivotal and opening my eyes to what is really possible. Now, you know, I'm such a big advocate for exposure in so many ways, right? Exposure, you know, to the point, exposure does allow us to love and care for people that sometimes we wouldn't normally or don't think that we would, right? Just by having a relationship with people, you're like, you know what? For some reason, I thought I should hate you, but now that I know you, I don't. Or I don't hate people who identify the way you identify or look the way that you look. Right. And, and so there is something about that. But there's also the, the part of what I think you're also sharing, that exposure to other people from other places 
helps even your own worldview and self-confidence. They're like, hey, like I can hold my own with the Sultan and with the, the this person and that person. So when I'm in another place, I can do the same thing. And I love that you were able to do that. So you, you also mentioned, you know, <laughs> you, you've been to some really nice universities and you've had, you know, a few couple of degrees uh, along the way. So I know that, you know, you mentioned Harvard and then I know that you also, you know, got a nice business degree uh, from uh, NYU, I believe. Uh, that's on the East Coast. What, what, what's your East Coast journey? So you, you got you got <laughs> Seattle, you got Singapore, then you start doing some stuff on the East Coast. Like, yeah. what, what was that experience like for you? I know. Well, you know, the East Coast actually came after a 10-year journey in L.A., so we didn't even sort of talk oh. about it. Oh, okay. So but, we'll you know, but, Well, no, and I can just kind of tell you, I mean, East Coast was a reaction to being in L.A. for 10 years, you know, and I, for those of you, you know, for your audience, you know, I am a film Emmy Award-winning film producer. You know, I came out of college after undergrad and moved to California initially pursuing a consulting degree, making a, a consulting career, you know, work for big consulting firms. But the reality was that little voice in my spirit that loved those stories and loved those, you know, kind of dreams and really began to experience um, while I lived abroad, the impacts of media. You know, I mean, as beautiful as my experience was in Singapore, folks still looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah. Like they were asking me if like, Beyonce was my sister and, you know, and I lived <laughs> next door to Kobe, you know, because yeah. they had very limited ideas of like what it meant to be a black person. And I began to realize, you know what, like, no, I'm I'm just a little girl, black girl from Seattle and my stories are just as valid. So that's what really sparked in me this desire to ultimately go into the media industry and really begin figuring out how do I tell more stories that um, are more representative of the diaspora and the plurality oh, of our experiences. So that way people have more understanding and just more greater appreciation, especially, you know, now 20 years later, I mean, black culture is like literally moving yeah. the world forward. You know, back then it was really about kind of trying to help create a greater awareness and understanding of this. So I spent 10 years in LA, you know, founded my own production company, you know, nice. produced various projects. I worked with a established writer director and he and I teamed up on, a, on several things. Like I said, produced documentary that won me an Emmy. And what was I, that documentary? I don't want you to move that fast on that one. What, <laughs> what was that documentary that you're on? Well, it was actually about the oldest and longest running Asian American sketch comedy troupe in the United States called the 18 Mighty Mountain Warriors. And we were looking at their journey as, you know, comedians and really exploring this idea of the stereotype of the unfunny Asian. Mm. You know, and I think because as a black person, you know, we have historically had to overcome a lot of those stereotypes ourselves. Like we're only funny, you know, we're only able to, 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 you know, to run the race, to do the jokes that I really resonated, you know, and I'll tell you the story of how that even came about. I was working with a colleague who I met an Asian American filmmaker, and he had asked me to help him produce a live sketch comedy shoot for this troupe. And, you know, I was just being hired as a producer, you know, kind of make it happen. And as I was talking to some of my friends and honestly, my black friends and the reactions I got were very, very enraging because they were like Asian, like what they going to do some math on stage. And I was like, wow. what are you talking? Wow. No. And I realized, you know, I had spent time in Asia. I had studied East Asian studies. So I realized there is such a rich culture of comedy. And, you know, I can be a rebel. And I was like, no, I'm going to we're going to make this story. We're going to elevate this experience so people nice. can become exposed to the unexposed. And that was really the mission of my my production company, exposing the unexposed to different cultural points of view so you can build Love more that. empathy and build more understanding. 
And what began as like me shooting a two day, you know, shoot <laughs> ended up being, you know, a year long documentary. We, you know, we were able to secure funding. Uh, PBS ended up, you know, sort of kind of helping us get the film done and and, and um, releasing it, you know, across the, um, you know, the the coast and the rest is history. I love that. I love that you have had a passion for stories and uh, really highlighted sometimes the stories that are not always told, exposing, once again, exposure, right? Like, how do we know if we don't see it? And how do we see it if certain people don't take the the time and energy to to cultivate that story so that we can see and hear it? And it sounds like that was a really big part for you and that you already had this kind of affiliation and uh, connection to Asian culture, which once again, so many cultures and backgrounds and identities get stereotyped and get put into a box and to be able to say, hey, I don't like it when it happens to me. So why would other cultures and other identities want that? And so I love that you were able to do that and passionate about that. So uh, before we come back to the East Coast, so you went to Harvard and there's probably some people we know that we probably still haven't talked about uh, that we overlap with because I knew some people who went to, to, to Harvard and I knew that was it was a tight crew of folks there, uh, you know, during a certain time, probably even still now. Uh, and coming out to L.A. and, and telling stories was, I guess I'm curious about, you didn't come out to do a storytelling and being in the media, uh, but then you found yourself there. What did you enjoy about it and what maybe didn't you like about it? Yeah, you know, I am at my core problem solver. You know, I think that's kind of how I fell into producing. You know, I was one of those people that definitely thought, I'm going to be an actor. No, I can't act. You know, I'll be a writer. Writing is really hard. Like, I have an appreciation for writing, but I'm not a writer. But once I began to find books and really connect with writers, I began to activate like a gift where I was like, okay, I am somebody, like, I I describe myself as a storyteller and a builder. And, and, you know, it it naturally kind of helps me as a coach, you know, in terms of my now. You know, but I can kind of see a gem in something be like, no, 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 like this is this is something. And how do we sort of work through whatever, you know, challenges, whether it be story or kind of fear, whatever that is to help people activate that. And so that's what, um, you know, kind of like led me into into coaching. And, um, you know, George, I literally just forgot the what was say the question. No, so what, what did you like and what didn't you like? Yes. About OK, so it was the process of doing that. I began yeah. to realize, like, I am a builder. So yeah. every single time I found a story or found a writer or found somebody that I really, really connected with and the passion around, just like I said, really wanting to change the narrative. Right. You know, I, I would like I'm an Aquarius. And so for me, I'm sorry, I'm Aquarius rising for me. There is a humanitarian approach to kind of how I see the world. And so that is a through line to everything that I do. And so for me, it was like, no, this is bigger. Like yeah. if we can kind of story by story begin to change the narrative and push out a message that is more honest and real, then anything is possible. And so that's what I think I love most about it. What I what I did, what I like least about it was the producer's the last one who gets paid. Uh. And it, it, to a certain degree, it can kind of take a long time for a project to get done. And I also began to realize that I actually loved, I think, the building stage and the creating stage, perhaps more than like the long shoots on set, you know, like the long amount of yeah. time, you know. And so and, and 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 there was a shift where I began to really get frustrated because you you need access to money or distribution. Like that's really what was the game back in the day. Um, it was before social media, before YouTube, like yeah. before any of that stuff. You know, I'm dating myself. 
And I began to realize, you know what? I actually have the power and the connections to solve one of these problems. Figuring out how to put more financing in place or figuring out how to get distribution. And given my background, I was actually working for a community bank at the time and I had founded their entertainment media practice. It was helping to really figure out how to put funding together to help independent producers kind of do slates of films. And I was like, I want to do this. Like, I want to have the, I want to have impact on creating more access for more, more filmmakers to be able to get into that. And so that's what caused the shift and ultimately why I ended up moving away from peer producing. And that's getting to why I moved to New York. I decided that I wanted to get into media finance. And I was like, this is really I think, where I can have greater impact. And I, I have a gift, like I have a skill set. You know, I'm, I'm, I have a facility with numbers. You know, I'm a great salesperson. You know, I can, but I also can speak the language of the artist. And so that's what sort of started the shift to me realizing I need to get out of LA. The whole industry was changing. I mean, this was, like I said, the early days of Facebook, you know, the early days of, you know, Kickstarter. And I was seeing like this whole technology come into play and this idea of digital really taking over. You know, when I started in the business, to say that you were doing something on digital was blasphemous. I mean, like <laughs> film was it. Like if you weren't talking yeah. about, you know, all of the uh, tourism that comes with it, whereas I was broke, like we were trying to make stuff happen. So I was always a digital pioneer before they even called it that. Mm. But I realized, okay, there's some branding in here. There's some learning you need to do. So, you know, my, my boss at the time kind of called me crazy. And he was like, you know, you walked away from, you know, a very high paying job. You want all kinds of boards and you want to go back to school to figure out how to become a digital. Yeah. I'm crazy. And that's, you know, but that's, but so it was sort of that, again, the joy of it, but also realizing that I wasn't having the impact that I wanted to have yeah. and that's where the decision to ultimately leave LA came into play. And I think that really just highlights, you know, the journey of purpose, right? Like the thought of like, as you're like going closer and further, you realize, ah, I'm getting a part of it, but this is not all of it. And I might need to take a detour. I might need to do something else. I mean, and I get the whole going back to school thing. I've been in school for a minute, right? Like I've done yes, there. I know you, that, got, right. you got doctorates and stuff. Right. <laughs> and, you know, what's crazy is that, you know, recently, like in the past year, I went back to school. I went back to school to get an MBA, right? Like, and this whole thought of like, okay, why? And, and I did get those questions like, dude, why are you doing it again? And the thought of like, no, I feel like there is more, right? I'm, I'm still fine tuning my purpose. I've locked into like the base, but I know there's some extra things or some other avenues that this part will unlock. And so I, I, I fully believe that's probably what you did. Like, all right, y'all don't get it. That's okay. It's not your purpose. <laughs> it's not. And, and being willing to take that. So I, I, I'm curious what allowed you. I know that you have been able to do that from Singapore, from going to LA for one thing and then shifted into media to then now you know, going to school, but that still wasn't easy. How did you do that? No, oh, it was not easy. And it was really, really hard, you know, and I, and I'll share this for people, you know, it is about that instinct. Like it, it is about trusting that voice, you know? And like I said, I was raised in the church, you know, so I'm a believer and I am also somebody who is fully committed to walking in purpose. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but what I did realize was something was off. Like to your point, something's not right. Like there's more. And I began to really, really go through a dark season. Like mm. when I left LA, I had come, I was coming out of almost a two year battle with depression, mm. you know, to your point, like you're feeling stuff is off, but there's a yeah. fee, there's something, you know, and, yeah. you know, I had, you know, battled sort of depression on and off throughout my life. I mean, we haven't really talked about that part of my journey. You know, I want people to know, like, it's not all roses and petals. I mean, there's been a lot of work here. 
but it was through a lot of therapy, a lot of, you know, reaching out to my community and people just kind of pouring into me, you know, because, you know, my decision to leave producing happened in the height of like the writer's strike happened, the OA financial crisis, like a lot of stuff went crazy. And so what I dreamed of actually taking place, building this entertainment media finance practice completely crumbled. And at the same time, I couldn't really go back to producing because like there was no jobs, like the industry, like we're in a strike now. Yeah. Strike was like literally happening. So I began to question like, well, what am I here for? Like, am I a banker? You know, because I literally had to turn and pivot to like selling and opening checking accounts, you know, for media clients. But that wasn't the vision. And so I did begin to question, okay, well, God, what am I here for? And I fell into a really dark, really deep depression. But it was through that journey and through the therapy and I think through a lot of just prayer and meditation and kind of doing a lot of the the journaling and the work that I had to, that I began to really understand, okay, Kibi, you've got to make yourself uncomfortable. Mm. Like you've got to make yourself uncomfortable. And the, you know, it's funny, I'm reading this book. I mean, I'm sorry, I was reading my, my, um, my reading a, uh, what do you call it? Um, My devotional this morning. And it was just talking about this idea of like, how do you try stuff out? When God gives you a message, when God mm-hmm. gives you a, a, like a prayer, how do you try stuff out? And the message I had gotten was, I think you should go back to school. Mm-hmm. And I've been wanting to, but I have been kind of like, no, you know, do I, do I want to <laughs> upper, but God. And so I, li- it's funny. You, this is, I mean, this is for your listeners. Like you've got to listen. I had taken a GMAT course to prep like a year before when I was like in a better space. And I was like, I'm going to go back to school. And, and I didn't, I didn't end up taking the test because of sort of just falling into this depression. Yeah. And after about a year and a half, I was like, you know what? I want to try again. I'd had some questions, but I didn't, I was broke. Like I didn't have any money. I was trying to figure out how to do this. And I literally said, okay, let me just call this school and see if, you know, I can go on a payment plan. And listen, Dr. George, I called the school and I said, Hey, I'm interested in trying to re-engage. I want to apply. And they were like, Oh, you don't have to pay again. Once you've paid, you can take the course as many times. I mean, I literally, I I start crying thinking about it because it was that step. And I was like, okay, yes. well, if I just get to this course once a week, let me try. And then from there, every single thing kind of came into, came, just fell into place yeah. to the point where like, I got a full ride nice. to go back to school. And I mean, when I tell you, I was in $40,000 worth of debt, considering bankruptcy, you know, all the things, but I just made that choice. So I just say that to say, it was just like one step at a time yeah. and just seeing if God said yes. Yeah. One step at a time and seeing if God said yes. And, and, and I eventually made it all the way to moving into, you know, an apartment in Brooklyn and figuring out how to start, you know, my first year at NYU. And it was one of the most amazing transformational experiences. But that's how it happened. I love it. And one, y'all see why she's coaching folks, right? She's helping folks, right? Not just because she's going to take out a book and tell you what to do, but because she's been there and she knows what it takes. And, you know, Kibi, I really appreciate how you're highlighting that because, you know, it's scary to pivot. It is scary when you don't have the money, when you don't have the resources, when you can't see the next three steps and but somehow feeling like this is a part of it. And 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 then it becomes a part of your journey and saying, I, I, I took that step forward and somehow the light opened up my path for the other step. And then it was a free ride and then it was this. And then I met these people and I moved on to this next part of the journey. And I've experienced that. <laughs> I've, I've experienced that now. I mean, I've experienced we see that in the past. You know, right. that's why we be in these trenches right. together. But yes, and exactly. 
And and it's you know sometimes we can forget those moments, right? That we get stuck in tough times, and we forgot that like, oh yeah, you know, God, you know, worked it out last time, or we pushed through, or our grit that we had from early years, you know, like it's all there if we sometimes can remember. But sometimes the depression or the anxiety or just life can make it hard to remember those moments. So I'm really, really glad that you 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 shared that. So. How did that now, going back to school, shape the next phase or where you are now? Like, I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, you're, you're doing some amazing things now. Uh, I'm curious, how does this all, like, connect? Yeah, definitely. Well, it's so interesting because going back to school did kind of a couple things for me. A, it allowed me to pause. You know, and I talk a lot about my power of the pause. I mean, you know, we may not have time to go into it in this way, but it allowed me to just sort of take a break, you know, and just start observing, you know, just start listening. You know, like I said, there were so many trends happening in the industry, you know, new technologies happening, you know, all these, like I said, social media platforms, all this stuff. And I just was like, okay, like what kind of what's happening? And the good news is New York had become a bit of a hub for a lot of like startup ecosystems and being in a university where you're just around people with all kinds of ideas and, you know, anything's possible, you know, and I would say for anybody, you know, if you are in a space where you're not quite sure what to do, you know, going back to some sort of educational environment can be good. I'm not saying go into debt, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars for a grad school degree, but maybe just go take a class, you know, at the library or something, you know, just doing that because it really um, activated a spark, you know, and I think, like I said, I kind of got bored, you know, I was doing this thing but I was like, ah, this is not really it. And so when I went back to school, the entrepreneurial spirit in me yeah. was really reborn, you know? And although I had been a producer, you know, and I had run my own production company for years, shifting it and thinking about it more so from a scale, you know, like kind of one-offs versus scale. And yeah. so one of the big goals I had when I went back to school was like, again, re redefining my brand as like a digital media executive. You know, I really nice. wanted to be seen that. And then also, layering in a little bit of elevated brand uh, kind of cachet, because up to that point, you know, I had done a lot of stuff independently, but I hadn't really, I think, had the opportunity to put like some big brands on my resume. And so I was strategic, you know, so I came out of school, I worked for ABC, Disney television, you know, I worked for Bloomberg Media and that, you know, sort of seven years unexpectedly, like I didn't plan to actually stay in New York. But again, it's funny. I remember I came back to LA for a holiday trip and People were like, hey, you know, when are you going to come back? And it's funny. I left there and I was like, it's not time. Mm. It's not time. You know, as much as people wanted me and as much as I was getting sick of them winners, I was like, it's not time. And so, you I'm know, that my pause. Probably, yeah, that was year two. And I, it's, you know, eight years later, it finally was time. But in that in those years, I mean, I took on so much in terms of moving in corporate America, like you say, kind of really having a show improve. You know, being hired as one of the, the the highest ranked, you know, senior executives at Bloomberg, you know, media and really having to do those big deals and having the opportunity to operate in international spaces and kind of being seen on a much more global scale. And it just allowed me to level up. I mean, that's really what it's about. It. Yep. Pushing yourself in ways. And again, I'm not going to front. Imposter syndrome was real in some of those rooms, you know, even despite everything that I had. And when you say how it all comes together, I mean, that is what led me to my Finally, I think uh, unlocking my core purpose, which is coaching. Yeah. Nice. You know what I mean? I realized all of this <laughs> brought me to using my powers of storytelling, my experience of this transformation to help 
other leaders figure out how to change the narratives that they're telling themselves. Yeah. You know, my whole focus as a coach, my company is called Life Editor. It stems from my work in the entertainment industry, seeing how editors have so much power to shift the narrative. You know, you can have two different editors take the same content and tell a completely different story. And sometimes it's necessary in life Mm -hmm. for us to really examine, okay, you've got all these experiences and they're telling you one story, but is that story still serving you in this season? Yeah. How do we kind of edit it? Maybe add a few things, take a few things away and tell yourself a story that is serving you for the season that you're in. And the idea of doing that for CEOs, senior senior leaders, you know, founders, which is really my core kind of target demographic, is all about transforming minds because I believe coaches can change the world because yeah. transform minds are transform leaders and transform leaders lead transform teams and transform teams can change the world. And, you know, that is really what I realize I'm here for, whether it was transforming an idea as a story, yeah. you know, as a producer, transforming creators' lives in terms of giving them access to capital, transforming, you know, founders lives to be able to allow them to create more money, hire more people. It is all about transformation. And that is really how it all comes together. And that's what makes it exciting today, you know, and the opportunities, I think, even more so now because of all of the like destruction that I think this country Mm -hmm. is going through, not only on the on the kind of micro level of of our nation, but sort of macro of the world. We're needed now more than ever. No, I, I, I love the journey and how you embraced it because sometimes we can be on the journey and we resist or we push or or we say no and you you know even through the tough times even through the dark moments even through being overwhelmed or going through depression that you still leaned in to to the place of saying this is it all these things have helped me right to recognize that i can help people support people coach people as a as one of their life editors right like as and, you know, and that in that, you know, the light bulb goes off or they access their purpose or their dreams or, or their goals. And I, I think that's just really great that you have done and continue to do that. And, you know, I, I also resonate, you know, especially in the work and podcasts and so forth, the start of like, you know, leaders and trainers, athletes and performers. And why I have connected with that particular group of people is that I find them to sometimes just be alone and feel lonely and isolated and yet have the weight of lots of things on their shoulders and they need someone right they need thought partners they need a life editor they need someone to support them and sometimes in multiple ways right like the way i support them is you know thinking about who are they holistically including like business and love right the way you support them is thinking about where they are and how they can be transformative for all the entities that they're connected to and it all really works. And so I think it's so great and amazing that you have been doing that. And, and I guess this is a good time where I start to ask people, so what are you working on now? Like, what is, what, what would you say is the now for you or maybe now into the future? Uh, what, what are the things that, uh, are also exciting or inspiring or, or that's on your, your plate at the, at the moment? Yeah, God, there's so many things that I'm working on. I mean, well, you know, practically, like I am, you know, kind of actively, you know, engaging in my executive coaching services. You know, I work with corporate clients, you know, and and it's exciting because, you know, being in entertainment, you know, I've worked with folks like Netflix and, you know, talking to folks like Lionsgate and Warner Brothers to potentially do, you know, work with them. Because like I said, creators have so much power, you know, so the ability to 
you know, coach major directors of, you know, global films and producers and showrunners, especially with an eye towards, um, you know, accessing the diverse gifts that we all have, whether it be our, you know, race, our languages, our personal experiences, because that's what's going to allow for the richness and the elevated sort of thinking and awareness for us to get through this. So really excited about, you know, doing more of that work and, and expanding that. Um, I'm also, like I said, working with individual founders, you know, for me, like this idea of founders and being one myself, you know, I've, I've also have other sort of, you know, ventures and stuff that I've worked on. Um, and that, and I believe the best coaches some oftentimes are the ones who are doing it because yeah. you can really, yeah. really, really, um, but you know, so I do group coaching with kind of founders of, like I said, startups, nonprofits, I sort of say, you know, helping people really with communication, like that's really become a nice. big element of mine, you know, and we didn't really talk about this, but I was the president of Red Table Talk Enterprises and sort of helped, you know, Jada and the team kind of launch the company that went along with that. And one of the big things that I really took away from that experience was just how much more we can do to help people communicate yeah. and have really, really tough and like honest, but yeah. transformational conversations. So a lot of my work in that space is around that. Um, you know, I mean, I have plans to launch a podcast. You know, I'm trying to trying to look at you. You know, we're calling calling it Wounded at Work, nice. and the idea is like we're all sort of carrying wounds as leaders. So yeah. how do we sort of use those as our superpowers and kind of really begin to activate and talk about them in a much more honest and empathetic and consistent way? So that way we can all begin to ideally have greater empathy, have more patience, ideally communicate better, get greater alignment. I mean, it all kind of ties into it. And uh, and really kind of cons consistently sort of pushing that out. So, you know, I'm just looking to just elevate. I love it. Be more aware. You know, this is why I'm excited to talk on these kind of platforms. You know, I, I'm doing a lot of public, I mean, a keynote speaking, you know, around a lot of my key concepts, you know, and my missions are really around two key things, I would say. A, this idea of the power of the pause. And we didn't get a chance to talk into this. I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. You're right. right, you're right. There's, There's a whole nother, right. Into yes the importance, especially for us overachievers out here who think work, 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 work. You know, one of my big messages for a lot of my leaders, especially, is that oftentimes the reason why you're not getting the success you want is not because you're not working hard enough. It's because you're not resting enough. Yeah. Is you're not pausing yeah. enough, And there's power yeah. in that. So that's a big part of my message. And then the other one is, like I said, how do, how do leaders activate greater curiosity nice. and how they engage with their employees, engage with their teams, engage with the world? Because I think all too often as leaders, we are operating in assumption and we're operating in states of um judgment as opposed to curiosity and it's the reason why there's so much friction why we're not hitting our goals why pe teams are not working together why people are overwhelmed why we're you know frustrated and just angry and so the more we can actually shift that mindset to greater curiosity as leaders the results will fall into place and so really just giving folks the tools around that to be able to move forward effectively a really incredible, you know, the work. That you, and you're, you're right, right? There's just so, so many things that we can get into and go into a deep dive. And, you know, you know, from the Red Table Talk, uh, you know, especially like I think in the early days and still probably now, just the, like how people were really like leading into like these really authentic conversations that, you know, I felt like, you know, it's like, oh, this is what happens in therapy or this is what happens in something else. Yes, yes. But not not to the place where a large audience could really tap into that uh, and to know that you are, uh, you know, a part of that. And, uh, you know, love to you know hear more about that and how, you know, the work that you were doing to just help founders. A big thing. I've been hearing a lot more about founders, startups, entrepreneurs 
who get stuck and struggle with communication, especially with their uh, the, their co-founders, the VCs, that like the whole other all the people that they're you know in relationship with and is needed. And so you're just doing so much amazing, profound work. And I'm just really glad to hear that. And yeah, well, you know, we'll just have to have, a, you know, part two. I know, part three. on the road, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so I like to ask people these last few questions as we wrap up. Um, one, if you could work with, collab with anyone, who would it be? Mm. That is a good question. Who would I want to collaborate with right now? Who would I want to, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, I'm just going to say this just because this is somebody who I have been kind of following. It's like the only person that I follow right now is a, it'll probably be a coach. So like Mel Robbins is someone who I'm really excited about. You know, I just love her philosophy. I love the way she's thinking, you know, Cody Sanchez, you know, there's just a lot of like really interesting dynamic kind of thinkers and writers, you know, I, I want to write a book. I'm putting that out there. There it is. Some books I'm waiting in. for it. And so I think it would be connected to, to folks who could kind of help me activate and bring that to life, you know, in a really, really just impactful way, you know, and something that I could be proud of, you know? So I think that's like, I, I'm in like a building thing, you yes. know, like want to work with other brilliant visionaries and thinkers. So yeah, I'll probably put together like a, and even you, Dr. George, I mean, like, I'm just like a, like a think tank. I'm just yes. like brilliant folks. Let's figure out how we got do this okay. work and get out there and change the game. I'm here for it. And, you know, the, the people you've mentioned are doing amazing work uh, and uh, putting a book out there is its own process as I've been in that journey. Uh, but, but also the ability, I think, to your whole theme that you've been sharing to expose thoughts and ideas to more people. That's, that's really what I think, you know, books, the media uh, are able to do. It just, you're just able to reach more people um, than you could possibly if you're just doing it on your own. Uh, so I'm glad to hear that. Last two questions i like to ask is, what does mental wellness mean for you? Mm. Mental wellness for me means having the capacity to tell yourself that you're not okay when you're not okay and having the courage to ask for help. That is what it is for me because I don't think that there's ever a state where you are not battling something. It's just life that we're in. And so what I've learned over, over the years and why, you know, I think I've become more effective at maintaining my mental health is a, I'm not in denial. Like if I'm, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I'm a pause, you know, I'm gonna yeah. take some time, but also to not be afraid to ask for help. Because for me, when I struggled the most, it was when I was not afraid, when I was unafraid to ask for help, unafraid to acknowledge that I'm fallible, unafraid to admit to myself that I cannot do this alone. And being able to create an understanding allows you to access the tools because it's all about the tools. You know, it's funny, Mel Robbins, I'm reading her book, the, the five second rule. And she talks about this idea of like, you know, having the courage to just act is easy. I'm sorry. It's simple, but it's not easy. Mm -hmm. I think this is, you know, even as a coach, like you can give all the tools in the world and it seems so simple, but the reality is it's not easy. And being able to acknowledge and accept that I yeah. think is the first step to being able to maintain mental wellness. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, and, and just so many ways that we get stuck for whatever, you know, messages. And, you know, as you mentioned, the things we tell ourselves is a really big thing about, you know, the narratives that we hold. 
and how that can sometimes kind of lock us up from really getting the support and help we need, which can then make us, you know, mentally unwell in so many ways. Last question, what mental wellness advice would you give to your younger self? And that could be as early as yesterday or any time in the past. <laughs> oh my goodness. Pause more. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean that my, my younger self needed to know that it's okay to pause. Like it's okay to not feel like you have to do it all and to allow for the universe, to allow for God, to allow for friends, like just to allow for all of those things that allow you to, I mean, to create space for all those things that actually give you the power to trust you, to trust in the, like the process, you know, I mean, I think for years, because I've had to, like, I've had to figure out how to survive, you know, at eight o'clock at eight years old, I was walking myself to the bus stop, you know, I'm getting myself dressed, making food, you know, so I never really had, was able to give myself permission, mm -hmm. just be still. And so the biggest lesson that I would say now is like, rest and pausing is an act of trust. Yeah. And if you are not able to, to do those things and keep it, you need to really ask yourself, what is it that you're not trusting? Yeah. And then if I can dig into that, then I can begin to really resolve what's causing me to have the, um, the friction, you yeah. know, the disease, you know, the things that tend to lead us to the depression and the stuckness and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, just pause more. Yeah, There's no. power in the pause. That is my lesson. That, that's right. They're right. And it is your lesson. It is your talk. It is your, one of your mantras. And I think like it is so important, you know, that we recognize that sometimes and I find this, you know, in myself, right? Like, I'm like, why am I, why am I rushing, waiting for this? Like the book process, it's been, you know, I've been on a journey, but when it, the book comes out, it's supposed to, right? And it will be the right time in the right way. And, and recognizing that, you know, I don't need to fast forward some stuff. Yeah. There's some things I wish I had could have skipped over, could have forgotten. But at the end of the day, it all works out. You know, a previous guest has just said that uh, to me uh, on the on the podcast that uh, if you're not dead, it's going to work out, right? Like, it's, yes. <laughs> you know, there's another quote. I say, you know, you know, if it's what well, they say, if it's the if you are still going, then it's not the end, and if it's not the end, then you can still keep going or something along right. those lines. Yes, yeah. yes. No, and listen. I mean, I have testimony. I'll leave. I'll leave you with one story. I know we're going to get to the end of this. Yeah, we got to yeah. go, but I will just say. I mean, when I left for a table talk, it was a season of like kind of abrupt change. Wasn't really quite sure. You know, I was actually dealing with some health issues, which is a big part of my whole kind of power of the pause. And I didn't know what to do. And I was just sort of like, okay, Kibi, somebody said I need you to sit still. And yeah. randomly, I reached out to a contact who was at a major studio to try and pitch my bonus daughter because she has, you know, aspirations to create content, blah, blah, blah. And in the context of that, this person asked me out of the blue, do you coach? I had a coaching business. I started in 2016. It was 2000, you know, almost 21. Yeah. I was like, yeah. yeah, that conversation literally transformed my life and I helped me it. take my coaching, coaching business to the next level. And I just say all that to say is 2016, I got the URL for lifeeditor.co. 2021 is yeah. five years and it was, but it was, but I, I was ready. And so again, yeah. it's in that pausing, it's in that trusting, it's in that yeah. doing something completely different that your gifts and your blessings come through. So for anybody out there who is struggling, who's wondering when the break is going to happen, sometimes you just got to be still. So, right. And, and, and I love the, the power of the pause. And as you know, you know, one of my talks is 
I give myself permission and I love yes. how like, like how they flow, right? The thought of like, if you can give yourself permission to really embrace the power of the pause and just sit in it and trust it and recognize that there will be good that comes from it. It might not always be the good that you hope or you think, but there will be good. And I, I love that you've experienced that, I've experienced that, and that it's a part of your mission and purpose to help others, to coach others, to uplift others. And so as we end, Kibi, I wonder if there's any last words you want to share as well as contact information that you want to kind of just put out there to everyone uh, who's listening. Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, you know, if, if anybody would love to get in contact with me, I am kibianderson.com at kibianderson, K-I-B-I, you know, kibi at lifeeditor.co. I mean, literally, you know, my name, you Google me, it will pop up. You know, if anything's resonated, please, please. I love to hear people's stories. I love to hear people's challenges. I mean, that is what I know I was put on this earth for, you know, and, and I, I'm just excited to have kind of had the opportunity to, to be here. And I will just end, you know, in this season we are in, the biggest piece of kind of advice or message I would just say, and I say this to myself right now, is lean towards a bias to action. Like we are in a season where action first, think next. Because if you overthink, you will stand still. You will tell yourself not to do it. You will let the fear take over. And we cannot operate. There is too much coming at us right now. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to hopefully inspire people and empower people. Bias to action is really, really what is necessary right now because it will work out. You have the gifts. You have the ideas. You have the connections. Everything you need, you already have. You just got to act. I love it. Uh, That's awesome. Kiwi, I'm grateful that we are connected. I look forward to our collaborations, our support of each other. Yes, yes. yes. In so many ways. Uh, 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 Shout out to uh, all the family. Shout out to Dennis. Uh, And thank you for your time and for sharing. And thank you for joining LeapCast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. What an incredible ride we just went on with another great member of the LeapCast community. I appreciate you listening and hope you got some tangible value from the episode. Please let us know what you think by leaving a comment, rating, and review. As always, please don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Dr. George James, and I'll see you next time.